This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, I'm Terry Strzok, host of Beauty Now. We're going to talk about smart lifestyle, Fraxo, FDA approval of silicone implants and endoscopic surgery, and Brazilian butt lifts. I'm Terry Strzok, host of Beauty Now. I'm the lucky wife of Dr. Steven Strzok, who's going to be my first guest for my podcast for plastic surgery, beauty, anti-aging, and more. Welcome, Dr. Strzok. Thank you. Tell us about Fraxel. Well, Fraxel is one of the newest laser technologies in skin resurfacing. I think the main benefits of it are that it's extremely effective, and there are many devices out in this area of non-burning lasers that actually don't work, and people spend a lot of money on them, and they don't do anything for them. This one does deliver in making your skin look smoother, softer, and corrects photo damage. So just tell us more a little bit about if you're dark-skinned, how does that work? Well, Fraxel is a non-burning laser. There are four treatments involved in the process. Uh, the process does take some time, about an hour per treatment. You come into the office and we paint your skin blue. You look somewhat like a Smurf or someone from Blue Man Group. After you've numbed for an hour, we partially burn your skin. That's why it's called Fraxel or Fractional Resurfacing. We're treating about 20% of your skin surface. And that 20% will grow in new collagen. The pigmentary irregularities in that 20% will be removed. And with four treatments, we will have treated 80% of your skin. And many of the brown spots will be markedly lightened. And your pore size should be smaller as well as tighter skin. Well, for many of our listeners, that's kind of confusing. How much downtime, realistically, if I came in, what would you say to me? The usual downtime is after treatment, you should be red or swollen for overnight for sure. If we're being aggressive with the process, which most people want me to be, it may be two days of redness. It's enough that you can go to things. You've gone to soccer games afterwards and been fine. No one looked at you or laughed. So I think you can go out and do most normal things a day afterwards if you need to go to a family photo shoot, you probably would want to wait two or three days, but I still think it's a no downtime treatment that you can do most of what you normally do the next day. Well, as your wife, I will tell you that I think you need at least three days downtime since you have, you're so beautiful, you don't need it, but I think it's an amazing treatment, but you do need three days downtime for most people. There, I, I do have friends that could do it in one day, but um, let, tell us more about melasma and that kind of stuff. Uh, melasma is a called the mask of pregnancy. You see it often after people have delivered children. It's that dark mask around the face. It's an extremely difficult thing to treat. People have tried bleaching agents. People have tried numerous treatments. The reason that you hear a lot of treatments for melasma is that none of them are really particularly effective. And Fraxel has shown promise in this area. It doesn't eliminate the melasma, and I think that would be an unrealistic expectation and that the, you as a patient would be unhappy if you expect it to be eliminated, but it will significantly reduce that mask and make your skin look more one tone or one color. Right, but if you go back in the sun, it does come back, right? It does return if you spend time in the sun. That's why we put you on sunscreens and a bleaching agent to maintain the results. Most of my patients that are happy with Fraxel come back once a year and do one touch-up. So they do their series of four treatments and they follow it up once a year to maintain the result. True, and your naughty patients like me will go back in the sun and just get another Fraxel. So that's perfect. Let's move on to breast dogs. A lot of talk about the FDA approval about silicone implants. Tell us more about that. 
Uh, silicone implants, I think with silicone it's great that they've been FDA approved again. Uh, during that whole time, I have and numerous doctors have been on that experiment where we've been using them for, two, for 20 years. And I believe in most cases of people who are trim, have limited amount of breast tissue, uh, are worried about feeling the implant, that a silicone implant is better. I think concerning the uh, risks that people worry about with lupus, that has been disproved by the FDA uh, protocol, and I don't think you need to worry about that very much. What is your best advice for people that have no breast tissue, size A or B, and they come in and they want double Ds? Well, I think that's there's really two parts to that question. I think the best advice for a double A patient who wants to have a breast augmentation is that that's the perfect patient for silicone. They have very little breast tissue and very little coverage, so you want the most natural feel in there. The reason silicone is superior is that it is the most similar to breast tissue in its density, so it's going to feel the most like breast tissue. Trim patient, eight-cut breast, you want silicone under there so that it will feel most natural. The next point with that is you probably want to go under the muscle because you want more muscle coverage, more breast tissue coverage. The point in a trim patient is to make it feel as natural as possible. Now, as far as the idea of going to a double D, they're probably going to compromise their results with that because if you push it that large, the skin envelope can only stretch so much. And at that point, they run the risk of getting tight and hard and unnatural. So I would probably tell them to go to a C first. And if they really want to go to a double D, once their skin's been stretched, they can proceed with the second operation. I agree. I find that with a lot of my girlfriends that they have gone too big and they have to go smaller just because they look like hard eggs. Is that because they have saline or is that because they have silicone or because they have no tissue? I think that with hardness, um, implant material probably doesn't make as big of a difference. There's never really been any data to show that silicone makes more hardness than saline than any other product that we've ever used. Uh, hardness, I think, is probably related more to either using too large of an implant, some bleeding into the implant pocket causing scar tissue, or some skin bacteria getting into the pocket, which aren't really in causing an infection. They're simply causing the body to make scar tissue. So I think those are the main reasons for capsule, not truly what type of implant material we use. And last about breast dogs is um, I hear a lot about what's above the muscle and below the muscle and what's the reason for both. For me, I do mainly below the muscle implants. I think that the coverage of the muscle in addition to the breast tissue gives you the most natural feel and that's mostly what people are looking for. The number one problems with implants are hardness and rippling or palpable implant. If you have a muscle on top of that, you're going to have less palpable ripples. Now the downside to going below the muscle is sometimes they ride a little bit high and people don't like that high appearance where you look like you've got, you can obviously tell that you had a breast augmentation. So what I do is I release a significant portion of the muscle so that two-thirds of the implant is below the muscle and the bottom third peaks out below the muscle giving you kind of the best of both worlds. You have a below the muscle implant that feels natural, gives you a better mammogram, and you have an above the muscle look below so that the implant doesn't ride too high. Okay, let's move on to tummy tucks. How does the scar, where is the scar? I mean, I hear that all the time, and actually, I don't know. I mean, I have a C-section scar, but it, can you use a C-section scar for a tummy tuck? A C-section scar is part of a tummy tuck incision. It's larger than a C-section scar. It's probably half again as long of an incision. I think the main thing with tummy tucks is when a patient needs a tummy tuck, they don't care about the scar because they need a tummy tuck. Where you get in trouble is, is someone who's borderline or not even borderline 
who tries to convince you that they need a tummy tuck. And if someone doesn't need one and they get that scar, they're going to be very unhappy. The scar extends essentially from the hip bone to the pubic hairline, across the pubic hairline, and across to the other side. But with that, I can remove a piece of skin that's about 7 inches by 12 inches in width, and it makes a significant difference in someone who has hanging skin or stretch marks below the belly button. So in essence, you're trading a scar for the hanging skin. Right. You need to have something to trade. If you don't have anything to trade for, you shouldn't have the scar. But if you're going exactly. to trade stretch marks or excess skin, it's probably one of the highest patient satisfaction procedures. Let's talk about uh, the laser lipo, smart lipo. I read in People. Everybody's asking me about it. I don't know. Being a smart consumer, I'm not surprised you've heard of smart liposuction. But I do think it, it did come out in the last month, and I think that it does have some good benefits to it. Um, the concept is that you place a laser in to the uh, subcutaneous tissues where the fat are, and that the laser makes the fat into a liquid. Um, the liquid is then much easier to remove, much less traumatic to remove, resulting in less bruising and pain, and should result in a smoother result as well because you've liquefied the fat as opposed to just sucking it out with a large cannula. Um, I do think that that isn't completely a new idea and that ultrasonic liposuction, which was prior to this by a few years, also liquefies fat and also gives a smoother result. But I'm excited to see what the smart lipo can do with skin tightening as that laser bounces underneath the skin. It will also tighten the skin, which I think would be a significant improvement if that's shown to be true. So now let's talk about endoscopic versus full frontal forehead lifts. I know a lot of people, my friends are interested in getting their brows raised, but they don't want that huge scar. Well, the huge scar that you refer to is a scar that goes from ear to ear. And what we do is we remove a large strip of the scalp, about two inches in width, and we use that strip of scalp that we remove to elevate your brows. So we're removing a strip of the scalp, elevating your brows, and that results in the brow lift. Uh, the upside to that is that it's pretty effective because you're removing a strip of scalp and that's gonna raise the eyebrows. The downside is that you have a scar which goes from ear to ear, not only the scar, you can lose hair in the scar, and the nerves to the, po the back part of your scalp will all be cut. So you can have pretty large areas of numbness of your scalp in the back as well. So those are the downsides, numbness, hair loss, and scarring. The upside is it's effective. But when you look at an endoscopic brow lift, it's equally effective, and the scars are literally 1 20th the size of a, a full brow lift. They're very small. We don't cut those nerves. You don't have the numbness. You don't have the hair loss situation. And you can still elevate the brow without all the downsides. So when you do the endoscopic, you use little screws. And um, <laughs> tell us what's in those screws. Well, that's true. And most patients laugh like you are right when we discuss <laughs> it. But we, what we have to do is, since we're not taking out all the skin to anchor the skin, we have to have some mechanism of anchoring the skin. And we use a screw, which we place into the outer layer of the skull. It doesn't go through the skull. Your skull is actually very thick. And uh, we can place a screw there, and we use that to suspend everything as opposed to the other way. Those screws do dissolve. Once everything's in place, the screw dissolves, and it goes away, and now the brow's in its new location with elevated brows and arched brows. I know a lot, but you're telling me that screws go into your skull and the skull's thick. So are you actually drilling into the skull to do that? Yeah, we have a small hand drill that we use during surgery, and it doesn't go in very far. The screws are quite small as well. And it's actually a very controlled process. I do them under IV sedation. The patient's awake talking to me while I do it. And I've actually, seen they don't beautiful feel results. I have seen beautiful results. It just seems kind of scary to think about. And the thought of minimal scars is great.
The last thing I think I really want to talk to you about is your facelifts. Neck lift, you know, define facelift, neck lift, all that kind of stuff. I think the best way to look at that is you can divide the face essentially into thirds. One third we already talked about, which is the brow region. I think the best way to address that is the endoscopic brow lift, less incisions. You can achieve brow elevation without all the hair issues that we already mentioned. Then you move to the middle third of the face from the eyes to the mouth. In this region, mostly what you hear about are cheek lifts where we're trying to suspend cheek fat that's fallen from up on your cheekbones down to by your mouth and it gives you that heaviness down low in a square face and it gives you a squareness of your face. We try to triangulate your face again, create a youthful face by lifting that cheek fat back up. And finally, we can address the neck, which is usually the most problematic area by tightening the neck and giving you a refined neckline. I want to talk more about the neck. It's what all my friends talk about. So let's just take a break for our sponsors and we'll get right back to you. PersonalLifeMedia.com Free internet audio programs on life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. Listen from your browser, iTunes, your iPod, or MP3 player today at PersonalLifeMedia.com Hi, I'm Terry Strzok, host of Beauty Now, and I'm so lucky to have Dr. Stephen Strzok. Let's talk about more about facelifts. Well, I think we left off with the three uh, thirds of the face, the upper third, middle third, and lower third. And uh, the upper third we've already talked about with the brow lifts, endoscopic brow lifts, and other ways of elevating the brows. When we address the brows, the main thing we want to achieve is an arch to the brow. And you want the arch to be centered over the lateral part of the colored part of your eye. So that's where I shoot for arching the brow, right above the lateral part of your colored eyebrow. I think that's a good thing you can achieve with a brow lift. You can also weaken some of the frown muscles that give you the frown lines. Then as we move down the face, the fat of your cheek tends to fall with time and it falls forward, forward, forward and it eventually hits some ligaments down by your mouth and creates the jowl or the squareness of the face. And the squarer face tends to be more of a sign of being older or aged, whereas a triangulated face is more of a youthful appearance. With the facelift, we recreate that in the middle third of the face by getting a hold of that fat, elevating it, and resuspending it back up on the cheek where it originally was. You can do that with a SMAS facelift. A lot of people have heard of the SMAS, S-M-A-S. The SMAS, that's something that you want to know about as a consumer because if you're going to see a surgeon, you want to know, are you doing a skin lift, a SMAS lift, or whatever kind of lift? Because if it's a skin-only facelift, the recovery time will be quick, but your results won't really last that long. A SMAS lift is where we go a little bit deeper, we get a hold of the deeper tissues, and we create a smooth underlying foundation by lifting that fat up and putting it back where it belongs. After we create that foundation, we then redrape the skin over the top of it, and you have a nice, natural-looking, youthful cheek. So think of the SMAS when you're uh, asking questions about facelifts. And then as we move down into the neck, most people on their necks are looking at what you could describe as the turkey gobbler neck, those two bands that extend down from your neck that most patients that I have say their grandma or their grandpa had and they don't want to look like their grandma or their grandpa. So how do we deal with that? The main way that we deal with that is we make one incision under the chin. I go down under your chin. I find those two muscles that are given that turkey banding and I sew those two together and then I cut them to weaken them so that you don't have that band under there. 
I then weave some stitches from ear to ear to further suspend the neck and get rid of that banding. Again, we create your foundation, a youthful foundation with a lifted neck, and then we redrape your skin over the top of it. Most of the work is done from below, and then the skin is just redraped to create a natural, youthful appearance. How long does that take to heal? Uh, with facelifts, a lot of people ask about healing time. The surgical time on that is about three hours. I'd say that you're in surgery, then you go home. Uh, within two weeks, you look pretty good after most facelifts, unless we're being pretty aggressive with the SMAS. The average patient for an average facelift, within a couple weeks, looks pretty good. Within a month, they look really good. If you're doing family photos or some big important event, you might want to give it a little longer than a month. But in my patient base, I usually tell people two weeks off work after a facelift. So you look bruised or swollen, or what do you look like? There usually isn't a whole lot of bruising uh, with the faces. It's more that they swell, and then gravity pulls that swelling. So say we've addressed all three-thirds of the neck of the face. All that swelling is going to be pulled down by gravity into the neck, and you're going to get a full-looking neck afterwards. So it's mainly swelling that we're dealing with. For that reason, we put a strap around your neck for about five days to hold that up to prevent that swelling from uh, forming and getting set there. So if we keep the swelling down, that's the main thing. The bruising really is pretty minimal. So not to get off subject, I know we talked about smart lipo, but now that you're talking about the, all these stripes, stripes and straps, <laughs> I just wanted to know more about lipo because I know a lot about my friends how to have garments and things like that for four weeks. Is that still true? Yeah, with uh, the liposuction, again, we deal with a period of swelling. The maximal period of swelling with any surgical procedure is probably 48 hours afterwards. If you're dealing with neck liposuction or liposuction associated with the facelift, usually five days of compression is adequate. Uh, that's fine at that point. I do have some lymphatic drainage techniques and other things we can use to keep the swelling down after that five days. With body work, you're looking at more like three weeks of uh, wearing a garment. The garments are custom fitted and custom designed, so they don't really interfere. People go back to work uh, usually within a week after liposuction, and they just wear those garments to work, and no one can tell they're there. But if you have aggressive lipo, you have to have wear one of those garments, and it's about four weeks, right, of healing? Yeah. It's not like smart lipo or one of these gimmicks. Well, I think it's more a matter of how much fat you need to remove. The, the technology, it's really interesting and people love to talk about it. And it, you can create a lot of great names like smart lipo or lipo selection or all these names that really catch the consumer's eye. I think it's mostly about if you're a big person and we're doing a big lipo on you, you're going to be swollen in whatever liposuction technique we use on you. And if you're a smaller person, the swelling's probably going to be less. You're not going to be as aggressive with that patient, no matter what technique you use. And they're not going to have as much swelling. For how many months? Well, in general, I think it's realistic. When patients come in and follow up, I've done their surgery and they're seeing me on their follow-up visits. You usually see 80% of the results within two to three weeks. So you're going to look a lot better within two to three weeks. But the final results, and we're all striving for perfection, to get to that final result, it is six months. And I usually tell people to wait the whole six months for the results to finalize. It can't even be a little longer than that. But 80% of the results are there within a couple months. All right, let's talk about the Rustelin facelift, which you know how I feel about that. I believe in radiance, Botox, all the other fillers. So let's talk about that. People are talking about, about radiance and Rustelin. Well, I think with facial aging, uh, the main thing is we're looking at two things. We're looking at skin excess, wrinkles, 
and problems of the skin, which are fairly easy to address. You just redrape the skin. But in a lot of those trim patients who have lost a lot of facial volume, as you age, you lose facial fat. Some people are extremely trim. They get a thin face, which actually, even though they're very trim, they look older because their face is too trim. And the best way to correct that is to add some volume to the face. If you look at the progression of facelifts, Nowadays, we are actually using a lot of fillers to keep people looking more youthful. We inject the fat either into the lips, into the nasolabial folds, into the cheekbones. In all of these areas, it will give you more volume and make you actually look more youthful. The Restylane facelift, mainly we're injecting the Restylane into the eyelid area, the nasolabial folds, and the cheekbone in order to plump up the face, make them look more youthful without having had surgery. And I know that you are trained in a thread lift and then you decided not to do them. I've seen so much things like on The View and all my friends talking about them. And actually, the things that they showed on The View was pretty horrifying, that they could break in your face. Do you still believe that? Tell us about the thread lift. I think as a surgeon, we expect to get A results for what we do. When people come to see a plastic surgeon, they want to see a result. They may not want to see an overdone result, but they want to see some improvement. And as a surgeon, I have a hard time trying to convince people that something's happened when it hasn't really happened. And I think that's the main downside to a thread lift is, is that the results are pretty minimal. Often you're trying to convince the patient that they look a lot better, and I'm just not really comfortable in that environment. So I tend to stay away from them because I don't want to have to spend one-third of my day convincing people that they look better. But is it really true that if the thread lift breaks in your face that you can't get it out of your cheek? Because I did see one horrifying picture, and it's not that it's true, but... Well, it kind of is true that the, yeah. the stitches are barbed sutures. That was the whole premise of how it was designed, is that they have little hooks coming out of them, and the hooks are all the way along the stitch, and those hooks grab the skin and hold it where you want it to be. So if the stitch breaks, most sutures that we use are smooth, and they slide right out just like a piece of thread. There's no barbs or anything. Once you cut the knot, the stitch comes out. These are barbed and they, they are very hard to remove. I've never had to remove one, but removing them would not be easy because you've got these barbs throughout and people who do a lot of them say they're very difficult to remove. They're also hard to reposition if you want to change where they are. If something's a little bit asymmetric, you have to reposition this thread that's got barbs all over it. Whereas with the Restylane facelift, if someone has something that's a little bit asymmetric, you just inject a little more Restylane and it evens it out. But be honest, I mean, you can't really inject Restylane to lift your face can inject wrestling to give you more facial fullness, so in a way it does lift your face. I think that though, um, the main thing is that in most patients I think a facelift is a better procedure. I think very few people have the time to come in once every three months and spend $2,500 having their face plumped up and then come back in three months later and do the same. If you look at it from a cost analysis, you're going to spend $5,000 at least every year doing that. So most of your facelift would have been paid for very shortly, and I do think that a facelift delivers much more. If you're a very young, early facelift patient, you may not even need a facelift, and you're 35 or 33 and you think you need a facelift, Restylane's probably the way to go because it will rejuvenate you without the surgery. But once someone really needs a facelift, I think the facelift is the way to go. See, that's so confusing because, I mean, I'm thinking that Restylane just fills in lines, but you're talking about it, a facelift. It's not, well, it does fill in lines, but it's also a filler. So if someone has deficient cheeks, you could put a cheek implant in. That would fill them in, and you understand that. A cheek implant fills the cheek in. The Restylane is the same thing. Instead of putting an implant in, you're just injecting a bunch of Restylane in there. 
So it is a different product. You're using much, it's a different concept because you're using much more of the product, but you're still doing the same thing. You're, you're not lifting the skin, you're lifting the underlying tissues, which then makes the skin look more full and tighter. So I just want to ask you, if somebody came in, they didn't have much money, and they're really wrinkled, feeling bad about themselves, really down, what would you suggest? Well, I think that's an interesting question because I think I probably would suggest something that's probably more expensive, but then in the end would deliver much more for them. I think the facelift is going to be a more definitive procedure. They're going to come in, they're going to have one thing done, and it's going to work for them, and they're going to be able to stick with it. I think that people who are really making a huge financial sacrifice, if they do something that's kind of a moderate solution to the problem, they're not happy because they feel like, wow, I spent all this, this is a lot to me, and I didn't get what I want. Whereas for a few thousand dollars more, they can do something that they're going to be completely satisfied with. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Steven Strzok. Hi, I'm Terry Strzok, and we're back, and we're talking about fillers with my husband, Dr. Steven Strzok. I just want to know, honey, what about Juvederm, Botox, Radiance, Clarify everything for us. I think you mentioned most of the big names in uh, fillers. Uh, Botox has obviously been around for quite some time. It is the number one performed filler or any procedure in plastic surgery. Um, Juvederm is a new filler. Restylane and Radiance, those are the main ones that I use. Uh, there are a number of other fillers out there, but I think those are the main four. So if you're thinking about fillers, I would think of one of those four. Botox, Juvederm, Radiance, or Restylane. When you look at fillers, you need to think about what you're trying to achieve. It's funny, patients will come in to me and say, I want Botox, and then they'll show me something that you would clearly use something else on. So I think in order to learn what is the best indication, you need to think about what type of wrinkle you're dealing with. Most of these fillers are all for wrinkles. A static wrinkle is a wrinkle that's always there. When you're looking at someone, they see it. Those can be normally wrinkles around your mouth. You have a standing wrinkle that's always there around your mouth and it bugs you and you're looking at it. Dynamic wrinkles are wrinkles that are caused by muscle action or animation of your face. Those are your crow's feet lines, frown lines in your face. Those are caused by an underlying muscle. So if you think about the cause, then you can think about what the treatment is. If you're dealing with a dynamic wrinkle, a crow's feet, a frown's line, that's Botox. And the reason for that is that Botox paralyzes or partially paralyzes the muscle that causes that wrinkle. If you weaken that muscle, the dynamic action of that muscle is gone and the wrinkle disappears. Uh, we usually use Botox for that reason in the area of the eyes and above. Smile lines or crow's feet, frown lines within the forehead, and those are the main areas for Botox. If you have a static wrinkle, those we have to fill in. It's not a muscle that's causing them, it's a deficiency in soft tissue underneath the wrinkle which causes the wrinkle, so you need to fill it. When you get into fillers, it's mostly about how big the particle is. So if you put a big particle in a big wrinkle, it's gonna last a lot longer. If you put a small particle in, your body, the little Pac-Man guys in your body that digest the product that we put in are gonna gobble it up faster and the smaller, lighter products are gonna disappear faster. That's why some injectables last longer than other ones. It's mostly about their particle size. So if you look at the nasolabial folds, which are the lines that extend from your nose down to your mouth, those are normally deep in almost everyone. So you wanna use a heavy filler in that area and I use radiance in that area. It's probably the heaviest filler. The upside to it is it lasts a year and a half. So you can inject the nasolabial folds and the patient doesn't need to come back for a whole year to a year and a half. Right, but you can't use that in other areas, right? Radiance is very heavy. You shouldn't use it in your lips, right? 
That's true. So if you have a fine line around the lips, it's the same thing. If you think of particle size, if you put a big particle in a fine line, it's going to overcorrect it and give you a lump there that you're not going to like. So then you move down the ladder to something like Restylane or Juvederm, which is a thinner product. You can put it directly in a very fine wrinkle and eliminate that. Now, since it's a smaller product, it goes away a little bit quicker. If you're dealing with lines around your mouth with uh, Restylane or Juvederm, you're looking at maybe six months at the longest of recovery time. Uh, of lasting time of the product. And uh, what you said about lumpiness is especially true in the lips. If you inject, in the beginning when Radiance first came out, we injected in the lips, but a good 30% of people were getting significant lumps in the lips, not just little lumps that go away, and we say rub that and that'll go away. They were big lumps that didn't go away right away. So in the lips themselves, you usually want to use either Restylane or uh, Juvederm. Okay, I understand all that. And I just last want to ask you about Botox in the sense that how come sometimes it goes away in four weeks and sometimes it can go away in six months? What I understand, and I, a disclaimer is that my family founded Allergan, but I have nothing to do with it anymore. Um, I wish I did. <laughs> but um, I understand that you can get three people to a bottle and then you see all these disclaimers. Oh, my God, you can get Botox for 100 bucks, But... Isn't that true that physicians can water it down and it's, that's what it's all about? Well, it's true that it's all about the concentration of the Botox that you're using. And all physicians water down Botox essentially because it comes to us dried. I remember the first one of my friends called me for the first time and he was going to use Botox. And he said, hey, they sent me my vial from Allergan and it's empty. And it comes to us dried. You look on the bottom of that vial and there's a little thing of powder in there and that's the Botox. So we have to dilute it. So the problem with that is you can dilute it as much as you want to and the more you dilute it the more patients you can treat but the less botox you're giving each patient so if you give someone dilute botox it isn't going to last as long that's just the way it is right because i have a lot of friends that said oh i got, I got it for 199 dollars," and i'm like yeah you and 12 other people so if you get it from a qualified physician who's um, allergan approved then they're going to get two or three people to a bottle that's in general true. I think at $199, it's hard to imagine that you could treat someone without losing money. Right. So again, actually, my, one of the questions I forgot to ask you is that, let's just talk about that. You want to go to a board-certified physician. And I know that a lot of people just go to these cosmetic physicians and they get a better deal. And that's what I'm talking about with Botox and everything else. So why would you want to go to a board-certified physician as opposed to somebody that's just a cosmetic person? Uh, I think with board certification, it's you know there's this certain amount of ego that I'm a board-certified surgeon and blah, blah, blah. But I think there is some importance to having a board-certified person. And I think the main thing is a lot of these procedures that we do aren't extremely complicated. Injecting Restylane or Botox isn't really that hard to do. But if you're a board-certified plastic surgeon doing it, you're being regulated by a higher governing body that tells you this is right, this is wrong, you can't do this, you can do that. And they're in general looking out for the patient's best interest. And people who aren't have no governing body above them are not board-certified by any board. They do whatever they want to do and there's really no consequence to that. So I think as a Consumer going to a doctor who you don't really know, at least you can feel comfortable that this person is going to do what's ethically right in a safe way for me that is going to deliver a result and isn't going to really jeopardize my health. When and you're dealing with surgery, I think it's even more important to have the proper certification because there you're dealing with an operation that you're going to have. And if someone has no governing body above them, 
They just can do the anyone. It's amazing that in the state of California, where I practice, anyone can really do surgery in their office that has an MD. They don't have to have any particular training to do it. If they have the guts to set up a practice and do it and can convince someone to let them do it on them, they're really not very regulated as to that fact. I think the main thing about when you're questioning a surgeon is, can you do this procedure at the hospital? If a doctor can do it at the hospital, they have to go through all the hoops that you have to go through to get permission at the hospital to do it. They've checked them out. They've had a residency. They've been trained. They've done X number of the procedures, and the hospital is willing to sign off on them. So even though you don't need to have your surgery done at the hospital, it can sometimes be a helpful question to say, if I wanted to, could you do my tummy tuck at the hospital? What do you think of all those shows? Extreme Makeover, Dr. 90210, and damn, those girls' butt lifts look good, that they're Brazilian butt lift. I think in general those shows have been good for our field and good for the consumers. I think that if you probably track the statistics of plastic surgical procedures, they've gone up quite a bit since the uh, mainly Extreme Makeover and Swan show, I would say, in the beginning, because those were shows that exposed a whole other subset of the population who thought... You know, plastic surgery is only for rich people or plastic surgery is only for people not like me. And then they saw these shows and they said, wow, look at that person's normal, just like me person. And so the frequency went way up. I think the frequency went up in men too. Men saw men doing these procedures and mm -hmm. men started doing it. Yeah. So those shows were pretty educational. I think the dramas are more what they are. They're a drama, they're entertaining. But still, those butt lifts? Uh, the the Brazilian butt lift, I just had a patient ask me about that today. So obviously it's sticking with a lot of people, that it name. Is, it's pretty I catchy. And that was on Extreme Makeover, as I remember. And it is a good procedure, and there are no real incisions with it because you're injecting fat into the butt to lift oh, it. Well. That's what a Brazilian butt lift is mainly designed for, is to fill the butt back in so that it doesn't droop by injecting fat back in it. You liposuction an area of the body, you inject the fat in there, that lifts the butt and makes it more full, and that's how it works. What about the lift part? I want to know about the lift. I want the lift part. So well, it's just like the restal and facelift in a way. We're adding fat to lift the butt. If you really but. need a butt lift, you have to make a fairly large incision. So mm -hmm. for you, it wouldn't be a good idea. And someone who needs their butt lifted, it, they have to be willing, just like with the tummy tuck, just like we talked about earlier, to accept the consequences of that, which is a pretty large incision. And when it's worth it, it's worth it. Thank you so much for being our guest today. All right, thanks for having me. Find more shows like this on personallifemedia.com.